we have a bit of Sesame Street for you. The message of that little song, in case you didn't catch all the words, was we need to eat together. And that's what I want to talk to you about today. Today we are looking at the fourth tool in the relationship toolbox. And the, the tool that will actually change your life if you learn how to use it properly is to eat together or drink coffee together. Brenda Barrett was talking to me this past week and telling me a little bit about how she and Dennis got together. And it happened at a young adult retreat. They started drinking a cup of coffee together late in the evening, and that's how they met. And they got talking and talking and sipping a cup of coffee and not wanting the evening to end. They just kept on getting another cup of coffee. 18 cups of coffee later, and like 5 o'clock in the morning, uh, they finally were worn out from talking and drinking coffee together. But here's the wonderful thing. It was over that cup of coffee that they were able to get to know each other. They were able to connect. And, well, the rest is history, as they say. They got married. And as, uh, as a tip of the hat to, to coffee, for what coffee had done for them, on their wedding day, they went to Second Cup, the coffee place, and had their picture taken, wedding dress and tails and all, fantastic. And if you go to their home, you'll discover that one of the principal motifs in their home is, in fact, coffee. There's coffee cans. There's, I think, coffee sacks on the wall. It used to be, anyway. I haven't been there for a bit. Uh, all kinds of coffee paraphernalia. All of it a great reminder that it was over a cup of coffee, or shall I say 18 cups of coffee, that they came together and ended up getting married. So when it came time for us to put in a cafe in our atrium, we didn't have to think very hard about who should run that ministry. And so it's actually Dennis and Brenda who actually got the, our little cafe ministry going in the atrium. And they've got Jared and Aaron helping them, and, and I think Jeff helps once in a while, maybe a few others. We recognize how powerful getting together over a cup of coffee really is. Now, here's the thing that the coffee companies, Starbucks, you know, they're brilliant. They've made a lot of money. They're great at marketing. But here's what they don't understand. We don't really go just for the coffee, unless you're a coffee addict and you need it into your veins. (laughs) The real reason we go for coffee is so that we can connect with people. It's an opportunity for us to spend time with one another and enjoy each other's presence. Let me say this to you, eating together and drinking together. This is one of the great spiritual practices that we find throughout the scripture. In fact, if you look at the very beginnings of the Christian faith, you look at the roots of Christianity, here's what you will discover. The very first, one of the very first spiritual practices is, in fact, eating together. Look what it says in Acts 2.42. It says, all the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. Now, when we think of what is truly spiritual, and we think about what the early church is all about, we think about what it is to be Pentecostal and what it is to be a Christian, most of us think in terms of, well, we've got to pray together, uh, we have to have praise and worship together, we've got to spend time fasting together. But we find that the early church does not list in its 
practices, its first practices, fasting. Now, I'm not saying don't fast because there are times we need to fast and pray. But what we do see is that these early believers, these first Christians, when they came together, they came together for a time of studying the word, a time of sharing with each other their their thoughts, their feelings, their ideas, and then sharing a meal together, and then prayer. So eating with people is, in fact, something that's very spiritual. Now, it doesn't sound very spiritual, but it is. But I need to remind you before I go any further, it's not the eating that is spiritual. It's the eating together that's spiritual. Everybody get that? It's not the eating that's spiritual. It's the eating together that is spiritual. And so today what I want to do is I want to help all of us think through what it means to be connected to one another, whether it's your spouse, your children, your friends, your workmates. And I'm going to tell you the way to get connected and to stay connected, to stay together, is over a meal. Some of you have heard the the phrase, the family that prays together. Well, here's a a better one. The family that eats together stays together. Exactly. That stumped you, didn't it, some of you? The family that eats together stays together. So let's talk about that for a minute. The spirituality of eating. Now, that might be really strange because some of you, you, you were coming to church this morning. You weren't expecting to hear a sermon like this. But I'm going to tell you, this is what I'm sharing with you today is very, very spiritual. This business of eating together is a, is a very ancient, ancient practice. And we, we see it th- recorded throughout history for thousands of years. Gloria read a book a couple summers ago called Three Cups of Tea. And it was written by a humanitarian by the name of Greg Mortensen. He devoted his life to helping young girls in Pakistan and Afghanistan get a good education. And the way that he did this is he won the trust of the people. He spent time with them. And guess how he does it? Well, the title suggests it, doesn't it? He spent time having a cup of tea with them. He spent time getting to know them so that they would trust him, they would trust his motives, and they were open to what he had to say. And so the the title, Three Cups of Tea, actually is borrowed from um, a Balti Proverbs. And here's here's the Balti Proverb. The Balti people are the people he was dealing with. Here's what that proverb says. The first time you share tea with a Balti, you are a stranger. The second time you take tea, you're an honored guest. But the third time you share a cup of tea, you become family. This is not unique to these people. Throughout the ancient world, you'll see that this is really critical, a critical part of their civilization and their culture. When Gloria and I were in Greece as missionaries back in the, in the early, late 80s, early 90s, whenever we would go to visit with a Greek family, somebody that we had, maybe had never met before, this is what would happen. And remember, it's only people we'd never met before. We would be introduced, we would come in, we would sit down, and if we were there for a meal, the meal was put on hold, everything was put on hold until we were served what's called glika. Now, I don't know if there's any Greek people here, 
But glica basically is orange peels soaked in, orange peels cut up nicely. I mean, I'm imagining an orange with the peel stripped off and stuck in a, in a jar. But no, it's cut up nicely, and it's soaked in a sugar water. It becomes a syrup, really. And the, the orange peel literally becomes full of that sugar. And so what they do is they dish out a little bit of this glica, the orange peel in sugar, to me, and one for Gloria. And, uh, and then everybody stands around and watches us. And so, so there, nobody else has eaten this stuff, but we have to. And because we are missionaries and we don't want to dishonor the name of God in any way and we want to come across the right way, there's Gloria and I suffering trying to get this stuff down. And after we've all had our sugar, sugar-soaked orange peels, uh, everybody's happy and the evening goes on and we can get on to our meal. Now, here's the thing. We talked to some Greeks after that said, oh, we don't eat that stuff. You don't eat it. Why do you give it to your guest then? <laughs> they say, oh, it's an ancient custom. It's an old custom. And by the way, if you're ever offered that, you don't have to eat the whole thing. Just take a little bite and put it aside. Now you tell us. It's the most disgusting stuff you've ever tasted. But listen, it's part of the custom to bind our hearts to their hearts. It's, it's a bonding food, if you will. And not just because it's full of sugar. It's an opportunity for our hearts to connect with their hearts. While we were over there, I went over to Turkey. And one of the things that you do if you're going to go shopping in one of the Turkish shops, particularly the shops where they sell Turkish carpets, is that you, you don't just go in and say, oh, I'll take this or this and tell me about that. What you have to do is you have to go through the tea ceremony. And what you do is you sit down and you wait for the shopkeeper to go in the back and prepare his tea. And it comes out in a little glass, little glass cup like that, tiny little glass. And it's maybe an apple-flavored tea or something, but it's clear. And you sit there and you sip together. Now, I'm going to tell you, if you've, if you've ever sat down with somebody you've never met before... It's kind of awkward, especially if that person speaks a different language and speaks your language very poorly, and they're of a different culture and a different religion. But there we are, faced with these people we've never met before, and we have to sit and drink a cup of tea with them. Now, it's actually, when you think about it, it's a brilliant sales technique. Because what's happening now is that our hearts are connecting with these people that we've never met before. And more than that... We're now obligated in some way, aren't we? Because he's given us a cup of tea. So, you know, he's given us a cup of tea, and we have to buy a carpet. That's kind of the, the deal. We're bonding. We're connecting. Did you know that the Old Testament mentions eating over 810 times? In fact, the word covenant, with every, with every, with every covenant, there is a feast. There's eating involved. Every, every feast that God establishes in the Old Testament, there's a feast that surrounds it. Now look at this. The word covenant, they believe, comes actually from, from the Hebrew word to, to eat. We recognize then that eating is an important part of God's economy in the way that God deals with his people. The worship of, of our God actually is often at the table with others 
who share the same values, who share the same belief system. And if we look into the New Testament, guess what we discover? The same thing. Did you know that in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, eating is mentioned over 100 times? The Apostle Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, mentions eating over 20 times. 1 Corinthians. Now, why do you suppose that is? I'll tell you why. Because it's in eating. It's when we eat that our hearts connect. Look at this. These are the last words that Jesus speaks before going to the cross. Luke chapter 22, verse 8, it says this. Now, the festival of unleavened bread arrived when the Passover lamb is sacrificed. That's the Passover feast. And again, there's always a meal connected to it. And Jesus sent Peter and John ahead and said this. Listen to this. Go and prepare the Passover meal so that we can eat it together. Jesus says he's looking forward to eating this meal together with his disciples. Now look at this. This is really interesting. Because those of us who come from a Pentecostal background, we would think that, you know, in those last hours before Jesus is dying and going to the cross, that probably what we should have is maybe a praise and worship time, or maybe we should have a time of fasting, not eating. That maybe we should have a time of prayer, maybe call it prayer meeting. But Jesus doesn't do that. He has what we now call the Last Supper. Of huge significance, folks. Because it's in that moment that Jesus meets with his disciples and he expresses to them, he shares with them the purpose of his coming to this earth. The purpose of three years of ministry. What he shares with his disciples at that Last Supper is really the culmination of his, of his mission. It's over a meal that Jesus imparted to his disciples what was in his heart. Now, I want the Spirit of God to speak to you. Really speak to you right now, because here's what the Bible tells us clearly, and here's what I know from my experience. And that's this is that I communicate best with you and you communicate best with me when we're sharing a cup of coffee or when we're having a meal together. You connect best with your children when you share a meal together. One of the things that I, I recall like it happened yesterday is when I first, I first went for coffee with my dad. My dad invited me to go for coffee with my brothers. And I remember feeling very grown up I, I think I was quite young when I had my first cup of coffee. I hated the taste of it, but that didn't matter. How many know that the taste of coffee has nothing to do with drinking coffee? That's not why you drink it. The thing is, is that I, would have to, I, I, was, I was invited to the table with my dad. I was invited to the table to talk about grown-up things. And so there at the tables, my dad and my older brother, my younger brother, myself, and we're sipping our coffees. And it never occurs to us how bitter this stuff tastes. What, what occurs to, to me is that I'm at the table. I'm hearing my dad's heart. We're sharing a joke together. We're laughing. We're being reminded of the things that we need to do at the next job. We're bonding. We're connecting. And I'm going to tell you this, that was, I believe, the time when I began to draw close to my dad in a way that I'd never been close to my dad before. 
When you connect over a cup of coffee or over a meal, folks, what's happening is that a bond is being established. And so we recognize that eating together is, in fact, very spiritual. And not only is it spiritual, but it has fantastic benefits for your life. This new religion called Christianity was actually quite a revolutionary religion. In fact, it was so revolutionary that the Jewish leaders at that time tried to shut it down. They saw it as a real problem. And here's why. Because here are all these people, good people, bad people, Jewish people, Gentile people, women, men, People of different backgrounds, people from different places in the world, people that spoke different languages, they all come together. And here's what they do. Look what it says, Acts 2, 46 to 47. Look at this. It says, all the believers met in homes for the Lord's Supper and shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. This was revolutionary. Because if you know... The Old Testament, if you know Jewish law, there's no way that Gentiles and and Jews were supposed to fellowship together. But here they are, eating together. Not just talking together, people, but they're worshiping and they're praying and they're eating together. Did you know that Jewish people were not even allowed to sit at the same table as a Gentile? In fact, what they would do to get around that rule, if they, if they wanted to eat with a Gentile, is they'd put two tables together and then put a tablecloth off over the two tables so that nobody could see that there were two separate tables. But if anybody came along who was an expert in Jewish law, all they had to do was peel back the tablecloth and see there's two different tables. We're not eating at this. We're not technically eating at the same table. That's how revolutionary this Christianity is. It becomes clear that Christianity is all about relationships. Relationships are the most important thing about this new faith. And if you don't understand that, folks, you will really not understand Christianity. You will not understand what you're reading. But if you understand that Christianity is all about establishing strong and solid relationships, then suddenly the commands and the demands of God begin to make sense. This word um, in this phrase, it said they shared their meals. See that, see that phrase there? Shared their meals. That is a translation of the, word, the Greek word trophies, which means to nurture or to bring nourishment. Now here's what happens, folks, when you and I sit together and we fellowship together over a meal, when we eat together. Guess what happens? We are nourished physically, obviously. But more than that, we are nourished intellectually. Remember, this is God's plan. We're nourished intellectually. We're able to share ideas, to challenge each other. We're nourished emotionally. Our hearts connect. We're nourished spiritually. Folks, that is how the early church rolled that is, that is the very basics of our faith. And that's what happens when two people get together and fellowship together and eat together. That's how Gloria and I got together. We used to, I'd pick her up, I'd come, out, I'd come home from Carberry to Winnipeg, I'd pick her up, and then we would go to, at that time, Country Kitchen. Anybody remember the Country Kitchens? They're all closed down now. They're turned into chicken chefs, and I think there's one on, on St. Mary's. It's now a place that sells dentures. 
I'm just saying. But at that denture place <laughs> on St. Mary, Gloria and I sat there for hours and hours on end doing basically what Brenda and Dennis did, sipping coffee, having breakfast together. In fact, I think one time we had breakfast, stayed there long enough that we could actually have lunch there as well. No end of things to talk about. Why? Because Gloria's heart was connecting to my heart, and my heart was connecting to Gloria's heart. And that was the foundation, my friends. That was the foundation of our relationship. It began with our hearts connecting and our minds connecting first. By the way, can I just say this to everybody today? In our culture today, in the year 2014, guess how people connect? They connect sexually first. I'm going to tell you that relationships that connect like that first usually do not work. Nine times out of the ten, they fall apart. It's a word to the wise. If you want a relationship that really lasts, it's going to hang in there, that's going to be there for the long haul, it's got to start here, not down there. It's got to be a connection intellectually and emotionally and spiritually. That's how we are bonded together. That's how we become one. And that, my friends, is the New Testament. Jesus calls us to participate in a special meal called the Lord's Supper. Does anybody know what that is? It's called, we call it communion. We eat bread and we drink wine. Now look, look at this. Nobody stays home to have communion. You can't say, oh, you know what? I'm, I don't need to go to church. I'm just fine at home. And by the way, we're going to be having communion together uh, June 8th, just to keep that in mind. But nobody stays home and has communion, gets out the bottle of wine or gets out the jug of grape juice and, and a big box of Ritz crackers or a loaf of bread. And, I'm having communion on my own today. I'm going to do something spiritual. <laughs> you don't do that. Look, look, look. You don't do that. Why? And here's what so many people don't understand. Communion is not so much about the wine and the bread as much as it is about something that we are doing together. It's the togetherness that is so important about taking communion together. Some religions believe that there's some kind of magical power in the bread and the wine. We don't believe that here. We believe these are symbols that represent something else. We believe that the bread and the wine represents what Jesus has done to us to make us one. Jesus died on the cross, all who put their faith in him, they all become part of the same family. We become one. And every time we take that communion, we're celebrating the fact that we belong to the same family, that we're one. Eating together. Powerful stuff. I have a recollection when I was a child. Nobody ever pointed it out to me. I saw it myself. We go to visit my grandmother. She had the Scott House on River Road. It's, uh, it's just a shell of a building now, but back then it was, it was still operational. And Grandma had a dog by the name of Laddie. And Laddie uh, had a bowl, a aluminum, great big aluminum bowl that, that would hold its food. Grandma would prepare some porridge and maybe put some grease, some fat in there and some leftovers and whatnot, mix it all up, and then give it to the dog. The dog would look at it and turn its nose, as I would, <laughs> And, and go to his bed and not eat it. However, if there was a group of people around, what he would do is he would drag that bowl out and begin, begin to eat his food in the midst of the company. 
And, you know, we would be out there peeling, you know, uh, husking corn or shelling peas or preparing beans for blanching. Um, my younger brother and I, we'd be there killing ants with a magnifying glass. And this, anybody know what that's like? I mean, we don't do that anymore because we're politically correct and it's, it's evil. But back then it was allowed. And while we're there just having fun and chit-chatting and, and having a good time together, there'd be Laddie. You could hear him dragging the, that great big bull, a poor joke. And he would plunk himself right in the middle of us, right in the middle of the group, and he began to eat his food. Now, it's interesting, isn't it, that even a dog understands the powerful social implications of eating together with people. Now, you and I are not dogs. And yet we eat like dogs, don't we? We just North American culture, man, we just go, we shovel the food down our throat. In fact, we don't even sit at a table. We, we drive through a restaurant. And coffee in one hand and the, and the egg McMuffin in the other hand and driving with our legs. Okay, it's just me that does that. <laughs> shovel it down and get to our destination. Wow, we've missed, we've lost something so important. We've lost what God intends for all of us, that we get together and eat together. Last Wednesday, I was talking to Scott and Laura, the two young people at our church. They um, run a Bible study group at their high school, and they call it Cross Tech. Tech Voc, Cross Church, Cross Tech. And here's what they do. They have a little Bible study. And then what they do, at the end of the Bible study, they provide snacks for the kids. So anybody that shows up, and here's the Bible study, they, what they can count on is that they're going to have something to eat after. Now what they don't realize, and I don't even know if Scott and Laura understand this, but something very spiritual happens when those kids show up, listen to the Bible study, and then share snacks together. Folks, it really is a spiritual or a covert bonding that goes on. There's an attraction there. There's something happens when you eat with somebody. And so they've got quite an amazing little group going there. People that come week after week, they hear a good Bible study, and then they have a few snacks together, they fellowship, they get connected. here's Here's what psychologists are just discovering now. It's interesting. They're discovering the power of families eating together. Listen to this. This is a report issued by the National Center on Addiction and Substance Abuse at Columbia University. They say children who eat at least five times a week with their family, and that we're talking about sitting together at the table. How many know that sitting in front of the TV together is not eating together? You're just eating at the same time. That's not to be confused with eating together. Children who eat at least five times a week with their family are at lower risk of developing poor eating habits, weight problems, or alcohol and substance abuse. This is the findings. And furthermore, these children who eat with their families at least five times a week tend to be better adjusted psychologically, and they perform better academically than their peers who frequently eat at home alone or away from home. Psychologists are just discovering this now. Discovering what we've known for thousands of years if we would just take the time to listen 
to the word of God and listen to the ancient wisdom that's been passed down from generation to generation. And why is this eating so important together? And why is it so spiritual? Because here's the thing. When you and I come to the table, guess what we have in common? We all need to eat. There is nobody better than anybody else. There's nobody less than anybody else. But basically, we all share the same basic common need, and that is the need to eat. And when you come to that table, what happens is that you come together as equals of equal value and equal worth. If you study a little bit about the history of England, you'll discover that the aristocracy, if they were going to really prove themselves as being truly rich and truly elevated, what they would do is they'd get for themselves servants. And they would be servants. Uh, the, the lady of the house would have her own uh, lady maid, and the gentleman would have his own valet. And the, there'd be a, a cook, and there'd be a footman, and a butler, and a housekeeper, and on and on it goes. Now, here's the thing. None of these servants was ever allowed to eat with the master of the house. They're not allowed to eat with the family. And not only were they not allowed to eat with the family, they were not even allowed to be at the same table. They were not allowed to eat in the same room. They were not allowed to eat at the same time, and oftentimes they didn't even eat the same food. What's going on here? Well, if you're going to preserve this illusion of separate classes, of one group of people being better than another, you can't eat together. Interesting, isn't it? In fact, if you're going to preserve rank and preserve the class, if you're going to keep each other separate, if you're going to... Keep your position of being high and mighty and keeping the servant as low and base. Well, you cannot eat together. It's impossible. And Christianity comes along and says, hang on a minute. If you're going to be a Christian, there is no distinction. There is no separation. There's, as Paul says, there's neither Jew nor Gentile. There's neither male nor female. We're all equal. Folks, this is the genius of Christianity. It calls us all together, people of different backgrounds, different experiences in life, different socioeconomic levels. We all come together as one. Nobody better than the other, nobody worse than the other. We're all equal. Wow, it's revolutionary. And this extends to the marriage and to your family as well. There was a time when, it's not that long ago, when men were considered to be of greater value, of greater worth than a woman. And all the women know that's baloney, right? Yeah. And all the men hopefully know that by now, right? Yeah. Hopefully. The fact of the matter is, is that in Christ, we're all one. And when you eat together, your hearts are bonded together. Every time you eat with someone, here's what you're declaring to everybody around and to the person you're eating with. You are declaring to that person that you're one with him or her. When you eat together with somebody, you're, you're connecting with them. You're looking each other in the eye, and you're connecting on that, that very personal level. In fact, you're looking into each other's souls when you, when you eat together. You're focused on each other. You're not looking at the television. You're not reading a newspaper. You're looking at each other. When you eat together, you communicate, sharing your thoughts and your feelings, and you feel valued. Folks, it's for this reason that moms need to have a mom's day out. 
It's why husbands and wives need to have a date night. It's why families need to have family meals together. It's why you need to meet with your friends occasionally to share a meal. It's why if you're trying to win someone to Christ, you need to sit down and have a meal with them. Because over that meal, with that person who doesn't know Christ, you're telling that person, I'm not better than you. You're not condemned in any way. I love you. I care about you. You are bonding with that person. If you have marriage problems today, it's probably been a long time since you went and had a meal together, just you and your spouse. If you've got problems with your kids, there's a good chance it's it's been a long time since you sat across from your son or your daughter and looked them in the eye and simply said, without a lecture, how's it going? And then we're patient enough to listen to what he or she has to say. You can do that over a meal. I would, I would say this to you in closing. Perhaps the most spiritual thing, practical spiritual thing you can do is to have a meal with somebody. Things are tense between you and your kids. Maybe you need to go on a special, go for a special dinner together. I don't know. I do know this. You do need to eat together. You do need to connect on that spiritual level. I, uh, I was reading in 1 Peter. Peter gives this instruction when it comes to loving each other because remember, loving each other is the second great commandment. It sums up majority of the Ten Commandments. Look what it says here in 1 Peter 4, 8-9. Above all, love each other how? Say it. Because love covers over what? A multitude of sins. And how do we do this? How do we love each other deeply? Well, Paul sa- or Peter says, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Be prepared to take somebody for, for dinner. Be prepared to invite somebody over to, di- to dinner. And Peter, and Peter says, look, when you're doing that, don't grumble about the cost. Don't grumble about the bother. You're sitting there preparing your meals, stirring the pot as the pastor, the pastor over, ah, oh, got to have my brother-in-law over, got to have my grumble, 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 complain, what this is costing me, what this is, I'll be out of pocket. I'm telling you this. The way to please Jesus and to love each other is by showing hospitality without grumbling. By sitting down and having a meal with someone and letting them know how much you care. I'm going to close with this. Gloria and I were both grew up with a strong sense of Israel's place in the world and the fulfillment of, of God's Word, the prophecies that Israel would become a nation in the last days. And so we both uh, grew up with the notion of the idea that you know, God has special favor upon the Israeli people, but not on the Palestinians. And so I carried that, and I'd say that to my shame. I'm embarrassed to tell you that, but that's kind of how I felt. You know, God loves the Israelis, but, but the Palestinians, well, they're those pesky people. And when we were in Greece, we were at a party with with a group of Christian people and missionaries. And a couple that we met there, Yorgos and Fatima. 
became good friends of us. I, we thought they were Greek. They invited us over to their home. And as we, as we get to fellowship and begin to get to know each other and share a meal together, we discover that, in fact, they're Palestinians. He was in Greece getting an education. I, I was kind of awkward. I didn't know what to do. And so I just felt in my heart God just saying to me, listen, just listen. Listen to and ask, ask him about his life. And so that's what I did. And began to share some of his struggles as a Palestinian. Now because I'd never sat down and eaten a meal with a Palestinian before, I knew nothing about the Palestinians. But he began to tell me about the the rich and vibrant Christian community in Palestine that I knew nothing about. I had vilified the Palestinians without even knowing them. But there we are, in their home, eating hummus and some other chickpea dish. And they're telling us about their life and about the struggle that they had while they lived in Israel. No, don't anybody go away from here saying, Pastor Allen is against the Israelis. I'm not, I'm not. But what you need to go away from here thinking is, Pastor Allen loves the Palestinians. My prejudice was broken down that day. And I began to love these people. And to this day, they're two of our closest friends. We don't see them because they now live in Australia. But over a meal, things changed. Over a meal, my heart was warmed to these dear, precious Palestinian Christians. And what a joy and a delight when his mother came from Palestine to visit her, uh, visit him and, and, and his wife Fatima. She couldn't speak any English, but guess what? We were able to communicate very easily and very well. Do you know why? Because we both had Christ in common. She prepared her best meal for Gloria and I to participate in. It was a glorious and wonderful meal. Lots of love, lots of warmth felt and expressed and exchanged. And it happened over a meal. Right now, there's somebody that you can think of that you're struggling with. Maybe it is your spouse. Maybe it is your kids, a workmate. I would say this to you. This is, one, this, is, this is what I would call practical theology. Very, very practical theology. I would say this to you today. What you need to do is you need to call somebody and go for coffee if you're having a problem with them. You need to invite them over for a meal. You need to take them out for supper. And you need to let your heart connect with their heart. Let his heart connect with your heart and vice versa. Because this is what pleases the Lord. Peter says this, above all, love each other deeply. Because love covers over a multitude of sins. The way you're going to make that connection, the way you're going to love that person, the way that you're going to start the whole process is by sitting down for a meal or a cup of coffee or a cup of tea. Would you stand with me, please? Father, thank you for the privilege and the joy that's ours 
to belong to what a glorious faith that we belong to. It's all about strong relationships, a strong relationship with you, Father, but a strong relationship with each other. That question echoes in our mind, why can't we be friends? God, today your spirit is speaking to us and you're showing us why we can't be friends with our kids and why we can't be friends with our mate, why we can't be friends with the people we work with. It's simply because, God, we're, we've been too lazy to sit down and connect over a cup of coffee or a meal. God, by your spirit, would you help us to see how very practical the Christian life is? It's not wrapped up in riddles and mystery, but it's very, very blunt and plain to see. It's very, very accessible. You tell us to eat together. And God, we recognize that that may be the most spiritual thing we do this week is to eat with a few people that we need to connect with. So Father, go with us as we go from this place. Give us the grace, the wisdom, the courage to go and have a meal with someone, or go have a cup of coffee with someone, understanding that this is your will, this is your command, this is what you're calling us to do. We pray that in Jesus' name. And everyone said it? Amen. Tell the person beside you, go eat with someone.